0: to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces.
0: We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence monheimmicrophones.com.
1: Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at BurdenEarthEducators.com.
0: This podcast is being recorded on August 18th, 2023. Matthew Agai is a dedicated reforestation expert, applied scientist, and executive leader at Mass Reforestation. He currently serves as the Vice President of Research and Development at Mast Reforestation, General Manager of Cal Forest Nurseries, and Advisor to Silvaseed Seed Company. His recent work focuses on scalable solutions for mitigating climate change through the development of new initiatives to modernize the reforestation supply chain and connect reforestation initiatives with natural capital markets. Matthew has been featured in several national publications for his work and real impacts, including a National Geographic article discussing national seed limitations, Mongabay articles discussing his team's pioneering work in aerial seed technology, and also many peer-reviewed publications. Matthew is also a practiced and enthusiastic public speaker and actively seeks opportunities to engage with anyone and everyone about finding solutions to the challenges facing the world's forests. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Matthew. We're delighted you could be with us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I
1: appreciate it. First of all, like Eva said, welcome, and tell us, Matthew, how you found your way to the great work that you're doing today, and tell us about the
2: great work you're doing today. Thanks. So. I'm very fortunate to have found my career path and I think I'm very fortunate because I I was quite focused early on. So I'm I'm entering my third decade of thinking about reforestation, thinking about habitat and seedlings. Where this all started was actually very far from where I work now uh, on the West Coast and in the Western US. I grew up in Chicago. I grew up to parents who immigrated there from two different countries and you know they were raising me in a very multicultural but urban place. And my exposure to the natural environment was the forest preserves on occasion, but, but mostly through National Geographic magazines. And I early on was inspired and was thinking about the world from a very global perspective, uh, a lot of imagination and dreaming, as you can imagine. So when I turned 17 and it was time to go to college, I actually took a step to go to wildlife and natural resource management. And the best program that I could find in the region was at Purdue University. So since I was 17, I I dialed in, I started working on a wildlife biology and and forestry degree for my bachelor's. And the rest is really just a series of dedications to both academic, public, and private ventures that have really taken me all around the entire world. So, you know, since those days of being a student, I I threw my hat in the ring for work at nurseries around the US and moved to the West. I found projects that took me as far as the Middle East and got to work on things like the Lebanon Reforestation Initiative. I've been all over Europe doing this work and, and then really have dedicated my career to the Western U.S. and some of these tropical engagements that have made for for good forays into a different space. So when I met the uh, CEO and founder of Drone Seed. It was really a, a perspective change um, because it was like an opportunity to basically put myself in a position to think about how to scale the problems that I was solving at a very community level. And so since then, that was about five and a half, almost six years ago. You know, we built a lot of technologies, tools, and processes to solve this big problem of scaling reforestation with automation, but then have now since recently rebranded and folded in a much bigger solution which is modernizing the reforestation supply chain in the western united states so uh basically i'm just living the dream and grinding just as as hard as you know 20 years ago and learning as just as much every day because we've got a long way to go
0: i think that's the key uh, keeping yourself abreast of what's new what's happening feeling the pulse of of the industry when you were talking about drones, we just interviewed gentlemen from Globe a Drone Company, and they are doing planting with drones over in Europe and elsewhere around the world. Certainly, there's so many new technologies that are helping you as a forester to make things better. And if you could if you could tell us a little bit more about how you gather your seed for planting, how planning is done, that would be great for us and our listeners. Yeah, I'd
2: love to share that. I, I think this is an often overlooked and critical component of the reforestation supply chain. And I think it's relevant to rural you know, and urban uh, conversations about how we actually Great resilient and healthy forest systems or urban forest environments. So, our process really is um, founded in the needs of the Western United States. And as you get west of the Mississippi, you know, we're talking about forests that are primarily dominated by conifer taxa. So, west of the Mississippi, there's something like 90 to 100 conifers that dominate or are the primary component of the structure of our forests outside of riparian areas. And there are 600 or so angiosperms but really the conifers are are the basis of that structure which allows us to have the function all the trophic cascading from the canopy all the way down to the bugs and things in the soil so our emphasis really on this collection is is to try to make sure we are focusing on how to get those conifers into our seed bank getting their their seeds into the seed bank and there's a long history here right and I, i think i'd take the whole hour if you allowed me so i'll try to keep it short But the conifers that we bank, we're we're very lucky that they have a, a type of dormancy mechanism that allows them to be stored really well when the seed is dry. So we're taking advantage of an evolutionary potential. And we basically try to get the cones of these conifers at the right time when they're ripe, which is a short period during the late summer. And we dry them down further in our kilns. And then we test them, purify them, clean them, and get them into our seed banks. So at the high level, this is a logistical process that allows us, that is really emphasizing the need for us to get to the right place at the right time when the seed is available and get it into the bank through this very complex process. More granularly, this is an extremely time-sensitive venture, right? And it's also odd because conifers are not like other agricultural systems where we can rely on seed production every year. Every one of those 90 or more taxa populations that are distributed widely and in very erratic manners across this very complex western landscape and very vast western landscape and not all of them are producing seed every year some of them may only produce seed once every five years or or on decadal timelines and in addition to that complexity we have wildfire and other climate driven events that are creating lesser and lesser opportunities for these populations to be intact and mature enough to provide seed in all the places so Really, we're in this position now where we're using software and other digital tools and some of the best science so that we can not necessarily predict, but start to identify what our priority areas are, where we have the least amount of seed, where we have the most urgency to collect. And we basically are pushing our teams that we're developing to have sort of a reverse 3PL, you know, uh, third-party logistics, right? So we have now this modern situation where you can order something online and get a package to your door in less than two days. Well, We want to create a similar level of efficiency for being able to identify a crop with our foresters in the field, find out that it's ripening and be able to create a a logistical process that's just as sufficient to get that seed into our extractory and into the bank. So basically, we're in this process of rebuilding this last half century of of complacency around not building these systems into a much more modern effort. So there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm, I'm happy to share more if that's something you're interested in
0: the new infrastructure bill going to help you because we're looking at climate change and and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, maybe this is the way to build that infrastructure that you need to gather the seed, to to have the seed cleaned and shipped in in a, in a timely fashion. Is this going to be maybe a, a, a little chunk of gold for your organization?
2: You know, I think it's encouraging to see policymakers um, incentivize landscape level change. One, because it tells us that their constituents, us, and, you know, all of us as stakeholders in public lands are starting to see momentum with uh, our leadership and bringing us as part of the national conversation. That being said, the Bill Act was, you know, quite functional in the sense that it it put together the Replant Act, you know, and funding, which effectively allow us to start thinking about mitigating climate change with some tree planting efforts. There's an ecosystem restoration and resilience fund that was put together. I think it's a billion or so dollars. And then there's hazardous fuels reduction and vegetation management. So it's not just the Band-Aid part, which is the aftermath of you know creating restoration resilience, but they're also trying to actively address some of the challenges we have in our forests, like overstocking uh, and fuels buildup that, that are causing some of the catastrophic fires that we're all experiencing today. So at a high level, I think this is very encouraging. What's disappointing is that the numbers that are put to this, the amount of money that's being put to this is fairly myopic. If you were to add it all up and look at the backlog of land that we have to deal with, it wouldn't even cover a fraction of a fraction of that work. And similarly, there's been a de-escalation of investment across the board, whether it's the federal government, academic institutions, private institutions, in creating and maintaining reforestation supply chains that are robust enough to deal with the problem that we have today. So this is a drop in the bucket. And while I am encouraged, I want to challenge our policymakers and our citizen reader really push harder to start to look at this at the global scale, at the national scale, and really start to think about this as an as existential problem uh, that really needs a lot more capital, a lot more investment, and a, an entire pipeline and, and potentially decades of work to be able to actually catalyze the type of change we, we aspire towards.
1: A couple of years ago, we had a great guest on, uh, Matthew, that USDA Forest Service and worked under the title of being a forest futurist. Interesting. And it was a great conversation. And I wonder if you would want to talk about some projections as far as the big issues of the day, because I guess we're at ground level in terms of the conversation we're having regarding seed sourcing. But we also have to think about it In the present but also forecasting a decade and multiple decades you know to the point where things quote unquote settle down a little bit in other words these big fires these hotter fires faster
2: fires they're going to be hanging around for a while that's right yeah i mean i'm I'm happy to speculate and also propose some optimism and some urgency in, in that if we're thinking about the wildfires because they're ever present right now and and no longer just affecting all of us in these western communities but now at a continental level we're starting to see smoke move into the east and remind people that you know we're part of a global community you know similarly you know places that felt that they were distant and immune from these things like the recent tragedies in Hawaii are Are now experiencing these things that are are partly infrastructure related or derived but but really the causality is rooted in global warming climate change or any version of basically anthropogenically influenced global conditions that have put us in this position so what does this mean for forests from my perspective well i think about forests not as a separate entity You know, humanity, I think of us as integrated. In fact, if you look at just the history of the United States, most of our development over the last century has been directly intertwined with the extraction of forests. You know, I started by saying I'm from Chicago. You know, all of those northern forests in Wisconsin and Michigan were basically mined for timber to rebuild Chicago after the, the Great Fire in the late 1800s and those timber barons who who made their you know wealth off of that extraction economy then subsequently moved west and began that process all over again which didn't really even stop until the late 90s and entire communities were built around those economies you know there are towns that we live in that we operate in now I'm in Bend Oregon timber town we have a nursery in Roy, Washington, timber town. We have nurseries in Aetna and Siskiyou Valley, timber towns. And these are no longer the timber towns that they used to be because the investment has to reflect that in a way that there has to be a product to rally behind. So if the timber economies have modernized, the extraction on the Forest Service you know, has slowed, that also meant that the incentive for investing in reforestation and modernization of reforestation slowed along those similar timelines. So while we saw protection of old growth, we also saw the slow of timber economies in a lot of these small Western towns. So let me go back to this fire piece, and then I'll try to put a thesis on this. So wildfire is expected to continue to increase at a scale that is unprecedented at a continental scale. And in fact, um, we, we don't have to speculate about this so much because a lot of great work has been done to model the last 40 years of wildfire and look at the next half century or more of wildfire, uh, potential wildfire. And recently, a paper by Davis and uh, others came out in PNAS, an academic journal, where a lot of scientists who have been working on this for their entire careers put all this modeling data together, and were able to basically show that, you know, we're in a position where we're going to see potentially the biggest impacts in dry Western forests, starting at low elevation and moving into the high elevation. And we've already seen the majority of those high impact, high severity fires at low elevation to the point where those forests are so impacted that they're not naturally regenerating. So how does this tie into humans and human economies? Well, we've put these forests in a position where they can no longer do the natural things that we've relied on them for. And that has cascading impact, you know, and that potentially means the breakdown of ecosystem services that we all take for granted. And obvious things that come to mind are clean air. Clean water, and then all the animals, all the trophic, you know, systems that are intertwined and connected, and then all the processes and products that come in and out of forest systems. So if we're gonna actually restore these forests, we need to create a non-timber incentive for these communities that have been long abandoned by, you know, the scaling back of commercial timber industries to reinvest themselves as part of that future force. And there may be ways to do that by putting values on things that we historically haven't, like biodiversity, like carbon. These are potentially gateways to valuing other ecosystem services like water and beyond. And we're at this interesting inflection point as a society where we haven't quite figured out if measuring and creating accountability around these products and entering them into commercial marketplaces is the right path to connect us to these economies. And companies like ours, like Mass, are doing the hard work of trying to connect these supply chains and these rural communities to these prospective products in a way that we had timber economies holding up in the past. So while, yes, we have this enormous problem I think we have this opportunity for solutions and there's a lot of people working on this right now. And, and I'm I'm excited that you guys are giving us the, a voice so that we can share some of this work and maybe a little bit of optimism on how we create some sustainability here.
0: Well, I think the, the thing that you're saying is optimism. And I, we had another guest on who said the same thing. Hal and I were got off that interview and we said, wow, That's the ticket there, optimism, because of the human mind and how we can actually overcome things. We've done it in the past. We can do it again. What I was thinking of, and I know Hal and I have been interviewing people who are doing urban forestry, and the urban forestry has been bringing in so much wood because trees that have to come down, whether they're in the way of power lines or because they're just old and right ways or, you know, the list goes on. Um, they never expected to have as much urban wood as they're gleaning, not always purposefully, but just because it's coming down from a storm or whatever. I think what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a leveling out of commercial wood, commercially grown wood and urban wood, where the two kind of merge and I wanted to find out if I know the West is doing a lot of urban wood processing. Do you think that there's going to be a merging of the two and that there's going to be a leveling out there that that may actually help to mitigate the stress on, on the, the the um forests that are, are taking the hits?
2: You know, I I think that we have a very sophisticated and capable commercial timber and fiber economy. And if I were to actually point at the people that are the best at reforestation, it's actually them. It's big TMOs and REITs, timber investment management organizations, real estate investment trusts, a lot of mid sized professional landowners, and even some tribal nations and other mom and pop operations that are positioned within timber economies. You know, so in the Midwest, a good example of that is like the Menominee in Wisconsin. In the West, Good examples of Timos and Reitz include Warehouser Company, Manulife, Sierra Pacific Industries. They're major landowners that own millions of acres and provide professional streams of wood and fiber products. So I don't know that any sort of surplus coming out of non-professional settings, whether it's urban um, or even wildlands, is really going to impede on their ability to supply us with wood products for the foreseeable future, not in the, in the volume or quantity that matters. However, I do think there is an opportunity for us to look at these urban wood streams and these non-traditional, um, non-professionally managed you know, landscapes and start to look at those wood streams for other carbon sequestration opportunities. You know, for instance, turning those urban wood streams into wood products like this door behind me <laughs> or any other manner of wood product effectively locks that carbon up. And as a society that's super reliant on plastic, metals and fast manufactured goods from around the world, I think it would be very myopic of us not to look to those urban wood supplies as ways for the creative sector, for people that are tired and downtrodden with these global, you know, consumership to actually take advantage of that and build it into their daily lives. And I think these are both entrepreneurial opportunities, but also good sustainability opportunities.
0: I just want to point out, because um, I know that the urban foresters who work with the regular foresters would be upset if I said they were not managed and they yeah. weren't professional groups. They are they're being overseen yeah. by urban foresters, these wood areas in the urban setting, and uh, they are managing these tasks. and um And it's funny because when we first had foresters come to work with us in the cities and we had urban foresters, they were like, this is so alien to us. We don't get it. And I know this is a long time ago because I was back in, I guess, about the 90s, the early 90s, when we would have these foresters come in from central Pennsylvania and they would be sitting in our meeting. And he goes, oh, I I had no idea that they were urban foresters. They were talking about similar problems. But on one public land within yeah. park settings. So that was the big difference. And I, I think it's really it's really interesting. They want to supply without having to travel too far from the sawmill. So they're actually building sawmills in the city so that they can utilize the wood that's here and not have to bring it in from the outside. So they're concerned about, the again, the carbon footprint. And I like what you're saying too, because especially in Wisconsin, we have a tie with Wisconsin too, because that's where the urban forestry really began because of the um, right. emerald ash borer. All of this is tied together. And I think that you know, urban foresters need to be working with more foresters so that they can see the other picture. I think maybe that's where I'm thinking that there needs to come, you know, something come together where there's a where there's a um an alliance of some type where these two groups can really join forces and, and work together.
2: So I'd love to say that MAFT has been trying to do good work to actually bring Um, ISA-certified and other arborists over um, to the wildland work. And we've already seen in other emergency scenarios that, that collaboration. There's been a lot of Western fires, as you know, over the years. And typically, when these Western fires happen, there's a shortage of people that can safely go in and extract and down a lot of the standing woody debris that's been burned. So a lot of urban foresters are actually brought into these areas and doing really hard work and really hard landscapes to actually help create some fire resistance, resilience, and health uh, before these areas are actually reentered for replanting or, or other management. And you know, with MAST, one of the big focuses that we have is actually seed collection, what we were, we were talking about just a few moments ago. And we found that some of the best, most professional and safe people to put up in a canopy are actually the professional urban foresters. So we've reached over the aisle and we've started to bring them to events like now our second annual Tree Seed Summit that we recently had. We had a lot of arborists there. And we want to bring them into more of this work because we think there's a seasonality to it where they can actually start to be part of this climate. You know, we have a national shortage of seed. And if they're the best position to do this, then in the late summer, we should really be working with them to communicate where seed is available, out-of-contract work with us, and actually sending them out to, to get the seed out of the canopy and get it to our extractories. And we've modeled this over the last few years, and, and we have a great platform. So if you have any listeners that are arborists, I'd love to be chatting with them. We're building that network. And you know our, our hope is that we can actually catalyze several regional industries to do the same, because... We have arborists, professional arborists, all around our country, and there's such dedicated people that I think that this would be a natural way for them, not only to participate in that broader, you know, future of forest, but also to to make a little, um, you know, side money too in in this new emerging sector. In other words,
1: if anyone's going to climb one of the giant redwoods of Northern California to collect seeds. Mm-hmm. When the scientific community is saying, hey, now's the time to climb it, it's climb that tree, it's loaded down with seed, it might actually it. be certified arborist. That is fantastic.
2: That's right. And that's, it's already happening. You know, um, climber myself, I learned from a guy named Dr. Holt uh, at Purdue many years ago. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've been uh, utilizing that. I got to climb some of the tallest spruce in the world. I've been in a redwood, but, The real bread and butter is actually the mid-sized trees that are in areas that are a little less glamorous. So, you know, we've deployed arborists out to Montana uh, right on the edge of a fire or right after one. Uh, California is seeing all sorts of training happening. And again, they're trying to get a lot of people to come up and get to speed. But I think the quickest fix is just to tie in with that arborist community. So... You know, we'd love to to get outreach from arborists that want to do this work and connect them to the right people because there's a significant demand.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, um, are you connected with ISA? Are you embedded in the organization so that you may talk about this with the organization and all the members of ISA? I'm not sure if you are embedded with them or not, but uh, that would be the ideal situation, don't you think, Hal?
1: Yeah, I think what I observe in the trade magazines as well as Arborist News is, and I want to say this diplomatically, but I feel like the tree care industry unwittingly is cashing in on the front end of the disaster, which means they are making voluminous sums of money taking down dead and dying ash trees, treating other diseases dutch elm disease etc but not getting involved basically at the back end which is going to be the planting so you come in you take down three giant ash trees or you have a crew out for a week cleaning up tulip trees that were leveled in a tornado but you don't engage the client in in the planting process and i think all of that is going to happen i mean the timetable is like i say for me having an optimistic mindset and saying, yeah, they'll come around. The tree care industry will come around. And at some levels, they are coming around. But the, the carbon footprint is pretty gigantic on every any given day.
0: We've talked about this so many times on different podcasts about, you know, if you're taking down, you should be planning. If something comes down, something should be planted, uh, you know, and it's obviously not going to do what, what came down. But getting something in the yeah. ground is better than nothing in the ground. And from our perspective, at least here on the East Coast, too, I mean, we're not living what you're living out on the West Coast. And we ha- I have sympathy for you. I, I just I just know because I have a son in California. He tells me about the smoke. He tells me about what he sees. And it's it's really alarming.
2: Yeah. And I, I think as an Easterner, I'd be, you know, where I got my roots in forestry, unintended. I'd be remiss to say that they're not going to feel the impacts if they haven't already of some of these climate pressures. They're just going to be felt differently. And, you know, examples uh, that you guys have already brought up are, are insect damage, you know. We've seen that in our global economies, we've brought in pests that have destroyed entire species, you know, from the chestnut and now the emerald ash borer with all the ash trees. But we're also going to see less stable climate conditions that might bring other pathogens, diseases, or just simply weather and environmental thresholds that change the dynamics of forests and forest seeding. So again, if, if we see these basic you know, functions change, we may not be able to rely on forest behaving and naturally regenerating the way that they used to. And similarly, in urban environments, you know, some of these heat indexes we're feeling and then the droughts, you know, if these cities didn't design these areas that are forested or, you know, parks or, or simply just like boulevards and things to, to be able to irrigate or protect trees appropriately, we may see the loss of iconic, you know, tree infrastructure. and And that's that's terrifying, and there's all sorts of health impacts that you know have been highlighted. You know, for urban communities having trees versus not. You know, everything from behavioral, physical health, and and air quality. So, pretty scary to think we, you know, to your point that we wouldn't be thinking about um, regenerating the next cohort. You know, planting the next tree, and and that really comes back to: do we have the experts that know how to collect seed? Do we have the experts that know how to bank it? If that's even possible, some seed doesn't store well. Do we have nurseries to grow this? And then do we have professionals that are thinking about this in some sort of integrated manner where it's actually on decade long timelines as opposed to just the very myopic right now? So there, there's a lot to consider here.
1: With your seed collection initiatives, can you just kind of run through the, the seeds that you collect, both conifer and uh, deciduous? Definitely.
2: So the majority of the work is in, in conifers. So I'll, I'll start there. Conifers have physiological dormancy, as I alluded to earlier. So we primarily are focusing on getting them ripe off of the tree. And that means that we try to focus on areas that we know we can access during that ripe period. And right now, that's spanning about 11 Western states. And we try to focus on areas where we have current projects in development. So unlike a timber company or, you know, some sort of fiber production operation, we don't limit ourselves to, you know, one or two very fast-growing or good wood product species or high-value wood product species. We actually would like to capture every and all species that exist on that particular site or used to exist on that site. The reason for that is we want to use a much more diverse set of species that were part of the historic community there. Our thesis is based on really good and well-established science that says that a more resilient community will have both species diversity, but structural diversity. And, you know, by collecting from many different species that were part of that historical community assemblage and bringing them back as seedlings and planting them in in non-plantation scenarios, we're able to create these much more diverse and potentially much more resilient forests, resistant and resilient to not only wildfire, but things like insects and, and other perturbations, temperature extremes, et cetera. So an example, for instance, would be, you know, we collect Douglas fir in the Douglas fir forest of Western Oregon and Washington, but we're also collecting Western red cedar, Western hemlock. In some cases, we do get into the deciduous species like alder and uh, maple. We also are starting to put ourselves in a position to start collecting oaks. But the challenges with these are that they are recalcitrant seed, or basically they don't have the same dormancy mechanism. So unlike that conifer seed, they won't store well in a freezer, and they have to be handled very differently. So unless I actually have line of sight to a place to plant them or someone to sell them to to plant them, it's very hard to be able to collect them and just hang on to them in hopes of having that nursery space and that planting ground. And so in order to kind of expand the breadth of species to move beyond that conifer focus and into the angiosperms, we actually need to create a project flywheel and a little bit of a demand and and train consumers to understand that, hey, angiosperms are part of our forests. And in order to actually harvest uh, the seed, grow it in nursery and put it out, we actually have to have a really tight communication pathway that allows us to do that. And we have to have all of our ducks in our own and be able to execute that in a way that is biologically realistic. So we're starting that process up again for areas that are impacted by fire. And and our next steps will be to start to incorporate it into our larger nursery production and and beyond that.
0: So it's really the logistics. And that I want to say that list of everybody on it from the seed collector that's right. to the seed or the the plant the finished product planted. So that's what you you need to create that whole mechanism for the whole process to work. Okay, so you may have part of it, maybe you have the whole thing, but you may need to replicate that 10, right. 15, 20, 30 times over, depending on where you are. And have interconnectivity with each one of those so that if you don't have a certain seed and you can utilize a seed from someone else, you can justify crossing the line of that organization to get the seed from them. Is that correct?
2: That's spot on. Um, so, the reason MAST has done the work that it's done by integrating companies like Silva Seed forest nurseries, drone seed all under one roof is because we want that vertical integration. We want that collaboration to be able to be all under one roof. it creates that efficiency, that speed, and that ability for us to actually turn that seed into a future forest. But to your point, what's really important is to scale this we need to not only have the investment, the projects and the the capital resources, But we need to do this at the local community level because we're not going to be able to do this without the local foresters that have the expertise that know the land, without the local seed collectors, without the urban areas that have some of the professionals that we need to come out to the wildlands and and help tend the landscape, whether that be an arborist or any other sort of professional along that supply chain. And so these historic um, stakeholder groups existed, but they were all aligned usually behind the timber industry. And we're trying to align them behind the reforestation industry because that in and of itself merits today that vertical integration, that economy. So it, it's been great. And and Silva Seed has been around since 1870 doing seed collection work and growing seedlings for forestry communities really all over the world. It's kind of amazing. And so one of their uh, collection methods actually relies on setting up these buying stations for seed, Yes, um, similar to the mushroom or the berry picking industry. We, we would just set up a station and a buyer, and then we, we work with the collectors to actually identify where they're collecting, make sure they have permits, and then allow them to be armed with bushels and tags so that we can have that tracking system where they get a cash payout or our station. And those bushels are then transported to Silvaseed for cleaning, extraction, and the creation of future forests. And this system has been going around since the mom and pop days where, um, you know, in the 30s and 40s, the family would go out, the kids would collect bushels, and they'd get a, they'd get a nickel for a, a bushel of, of cones, right. and they'd, that'd be their fair money because it was the end of the summer and it was fair season, right? And so now fast forward that to 2023, you know, we've been like increasing the value of these bushels after we took over this business. And then we've been tying into former timber communities. And there's now... Great, great grandchildren, grandchildren of these communities that still have this tradition that they employ. And it's amazing because they're like, oh, my goodness, we thought we'd never be able to do this. You know, we heard stories of grandpa doing it or we got trained by mom and dad to do this, but it went away. So we're revitalizing that. And all of a sudden we have a way for these communities who, you know, in some cases, this is the only income they'll make all summer to participate in a thing that is not only good for their forest, in their backyard, but also good for the global community and, sure. you know, putting money in their pocket and, and giving them some reliability. And it's a forest product that's right in their yard. So they really know what they're looking at. I mean, there's there's a lot here. And I can't emphasize enough that there's so many opportunities like this one along that forestry supply chain that start in rural areas and end in urban environments and vice versa, Right. Um, and we we want to make sure those communities can participate in this new economy as, as a way to create some sustainability here
0: This is where I can see drones being very important for checking on ripeness or checking on the location of where the seed are i mean i I can just see you know if if I was a drone operator, the first thing I would do is put it up there and get in close and see what 's ripe and what's what's Masting, uh, literally, I like the name of your company, Mast. And, and the idea of getting, getting people in those areas and say, Hey, you know, we at this particular point, GIS point, this is where you can send people and pick all you want. And tomorrow it's over here.
2: Um, Eva, that's awesome. That's very perceptive. And we should actually hire you on our R&D team because that, that's what exactly where we've started to make our investments. We took the drone technology we had and we started putting sensors on them so we can look at cones. We're also looking at seeing if we can't measure the seedlings that we're planting and seeing if they're actually successfully surviving and thriving over the coming years. So these are opportunities now for stakeholders from engineering and physics communities to get involved in the future of their forests. And we have those people on our team, but there's going to be a lot more of that innovation needed. And for all those students listening out there, you know, if if you're wondering how you can still get an engineering or software or or physics degree and help in the forest, that's the ticket. So I was very perceptive of you, yeah.
0: I was out to Minnesota just the other week for a garden communicators event and we went to bailey's bailey's nursery but the the family's home and they had really old quercus macrocarpa oh. and I was so excited. Everybody's like, what is going on with you? Why are you so excited? And I said, take a look at this tree. It's it's going to mass this year. Look at all the acorns on it. And I've taken so many pictures of it. It was like somebody taking pictures of swimsuits or something. I don't know. But I I was laughing because I had maybe a 100 pictures of the acorns from these two trees that had so many acorns I had never seen before. And all the times I've been teaching... For my whole career, I've never saw anything like it. I was so excited. And people were like laughing at me. But that's the kind of thing that makes me happy because you see something. And yeah. that would make that whole family's income for mm-hmm. from that tree. I mean, you know, thousands and thousands of the acorns.
2: Right.
1: Well, let's do a quick exercise since I'm looking at two experts. Silviculture 101. What causes a mass year? For an oak.
2: Yeah. Let me zoom out all the way and actually put something out there that could be a challenge for some of the bright folks that are listening to this podcast. So, in centuries of tracking mast events across angiosperms, conifers, and many other woody species, we haven't actually gotten a good predictive model for, to be able to do that. There are some great scientists around the world that are starting to put ourselves in a position to identify trends and maybe on a subdecadal or, you know, more refined scale can identify when a mass might happen at a landscape level. But that's quite difficult still. And we find this phenomena fascinating for a number of reasons. One, because when you have a mass event across an entire population, we are not sure how that's being communicated and what that climate signal is. For example, when Ponderosa Pine was masting it just a few years ago, we saw cones from central Canada all the way down to Baja, Mexico, oh. you know, across like, you know, eight different states. It was it was incredible. And these are very different environments, wet forest, sure. music forest, xeric forest, uh, edges of high deserts. How are they all communicating this mast? Or is it some sort of continental signal or Pacific decadal oscillation or something else that's, that's driving this? Or is it carbon reserves? And we have a lot of really good theories and models that put us in a position to identify maybe some granularity there, but no one has quite put the pin on it. And the other thing we should identify is that when trees do mass, so the oaks you mentioned, for example, or the macrocarpa or bur oak, is a phenomenally large and beefy cone. It's just quite the sight. I'm just as excited as you are when I see that. But it's such a huge investment in wood and resources. So the tree is expending great amounts of resources to, to put that out. And you would wonder that why it would do that on an asynchronous way. And then you start to think about what is a challenge evolutionarily that these seed dispersing mechanisms have always had. And that's predators and the ability for that seed to land and, and turn into a next generation. And you start to think about the turnover of individual seeds. So like if a tree like an oak puts out a a 10,000 acorns, only two or three might actually grow to be a mature tree in the lifetime of that individual bumper crop. Similarly with the conifers, right? And you realize that asynchrony is, is is an evolutionary mechanism and maybe they're doing that because they don't want to see a pairing with other organisms that are seed predators or the casticity is actually favorable for climate and other events that you know don't always create the optimal conditions for regeneration so maybe that strategy of being not so easy to pin down when mass is happening is actually an evolutionary trait in and of itself where they're keeping everyone guessing but also increasing the likelihood that they'll drop seed at the right time in the right place and and create that new cohort uh it's pretty amazing thing
0: i think that's that's fantastic we had tree movers on uh called treemover.com and i was fascinated and something that the gentleman said made me think this could bring a lot of information they like transporting and transplanting the bigger the bigger the tree the better and he said the reason why they always take, there's very r- rare cases where they don't take. It's because the root system has so much food in it. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so when you're talking about mast years, I'm thinking maybe there's just something between the mycorrhiza and the rhizophagy that it actually, it has to push out because there's so much nutrients in that area that it has to push out and it's going to push up into the tree. So what's the tree do? It puts on more flowers and it feeds that tree that mast. And then um, it'll wait for a while because the the, the uh, mycorrhiza has to redevelop again and and recapitulate and try to, to work with those roots again in a different way. And it may be a different nutrient, for example. But I can certainly, I heard everything that you said, and I think it's really valuable information. But sometimes you just have a mast here and there, not That's everywhere, right. here and That's there. Right. And this is was a here and there kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'm wondering if it has to do with that the tree is standing by itself. There's a couple other old ones around, but they were not the same species. So maybe it has to do with knowing that something else is not around, that their species is going to survive.
2: Who knows? That, that's right. I think we this is a poorly understood phenomenon. And that exemplifies, I think, the thing for me that is most important, which is when these trees are masting, whether it's an individual or population, it's deeply irresponsible of us not to get that seed and create a pathway for it to get back in the system. because we've created such a climate catastrophe in some places that forests aren't naturally regenerating. Yeah. So yeah. if we don't collect that seed, that's a missed opportunity. And if it doesn't happen for 10 more years and a fire blows through that area and that population's gone, we've lost a genetic legacy. And this is where I, I, I have difficulty with, with public lands. You know, the U.S. Forest Service manages millions of acres in the Western United States. And they're in a position to take that genetic resource and make it available for the common good, and I'm I'm deeply concerned that we're not seeing enough momentum and activism to actually allow for collection of that seed, because a lot of the adjacent properties have already been impacted by fire, or maybe, you know, don't actually have mature forest on them. So, I'd like to see scientists and and policymakers that are focusing on the forest service or at the forest service start to create some internal mechanisms, some activism to, to increase the level of urgency around that issue. And I'm not seeing it and it's quite frustrating.
0: Well, that's, that's a really interesting point. Very mm-hmm. interesting point.
2: Well, in
1: the spirit of optimism, Matthew, as we kind of close out our, our time with you, can you share some success stories uh, in terms of, I'm thinking of The catastrophic, super hot, multiple fires of California, Mm -hmm. but also what's going on in Colorado with the losses there. What are some of those projects looking like
2: in terms of the mitigation and repair? there is a lot of good momentum in places like Colorado and in California you have a lot of well there's a there's a lot of differences i'll start with california california has a, a great deal of forest diversity you know you just look at the the conifers that make up those forests and and they're the most diverse in the world uh, by square area in fact in northern california they have an area called the miracle mile which is not the, the center of conifer diversity and hmm. timber conifer systems incredible wow and these areas are currently on fire and you know from there, all the way down to the South Sierra, you have you know, your giant redwoods and sequoias and, and all these different species that are, that are iconic. And you also have a ton of communities that are built into that timber economy and that space, both on the industry and non-industrial side. So when these fires come through, you know, we have seen in situations where timber industry, the local communities, federal government, and state agencies all collaborate on that recovery. And you get trees back on the ground in those next few years. That exists. That happens. What we're facing is actually a supply chain issue to do that at the scale to keep up with the pace of the fires. So in California, you know, you have this robust community of stakeholders that could do this work. It's just a matter of capitalizing and incentivizing them. To contrast, in Colorado, there hasn't been a very robust timber industry there for, for a very long time. And you can tell by just looking at how many mills and how much extraction is happening you know and as a result there hasn't been a lot of compliance reforestation built in so there aren't many nurseries there aren't a lot of people collecting seed and when their forests burn, they're even slower to regrow because they're much higher elevation. They're colder for part of the year. It's drier in some cases. So it's even more urgent that we actually respond and get into those uh, places. And what's scary is a lot of our watersheds originate in places like Colorado. So it's not just about the forest for the trees. It's the forest for the, the thing that they're protecting and making sure that we have, which is water supply in the Western U.S. So the optimism there is you know, companies like Mast and and several others are starting to see opportunities to value ecosystem services and show landowners that you don't have to manage for timber. You can actually manage for something else. And that capital can be a lot more near term to help you pay for what is ultimately a reforestation effort. And some of those landowners can be private, tribal. They can also be agencies, watershed managers. And these conversations are happening. And we're out there actually right now looking for seed. Um, there's other groups collecting. We're starting to see training happening for a workforce. You know, So there, there's, we're just in the infancy of this. And I would say that I'm very optimistic that we're gonna start to see momentum. What I'm concerned about is how fast we can do this, um, and at what scale.
1: So Colorado, wouldn't they be having a, more or less a monoculture for the most part? They don't have the diversity.
2: They do. And it's just that not all forests are are the same. So in the wake of the timber industries, there was a reduction in diversity because they focused on the products that were most effective when they replanted a lot of areas. But you know, ecosystems are naturally evolved and to have community assemblages that can survive those environments and those species can work together to, to maintain forests, forests, regenerate, etc. So in some of these systems, we may only have two or three components of the ecosystem. And yeah. people may view that as, as risky in today's climate, but we view that as an opportunity to actually be able to restore, you know, forests that maybe have slightly more simple structure. Yeah. So contrasting the two, you know, like Colorado may only have assemblage of three to five species in any given area, whereas, you know, that miracle mile area may have 15. Right. Right. But the timber industry was focused on maybe two species in each. So we have an opportunity to start to reintegrate these components of these systems that really have cascading effects on all the other communities of organisms from the ground up um, that that need that diversity. Yeah.
0: Uh, That's really fascinating. And I like your idea of people not having to sell their timber, but to actually collect seed, that becomes valuable for the community and the globe as a whole. Um, You don't Mm -hmm. know where that seed is needed. And it may not be the same provenance, but it certainly may fill a hole someplace else where you can't get that provenance anymore.
2: That's right. We're actually doing a lot of good work with academic partners about moving and migrating seed. It's It's a tool we use called assisted migration. Right. And there are a variety of modeling tools available in the public space, and we've built our own software to help us map where inventories exist and start to integrate with those tools and think about where we're going to move seed. Because the reality is, is these fires are so big that in some cases they've taken populations out, and we'll never see regeneration of that original provenance. So we need to move seed from other climate analogs or equivalent scenarios and. You know, I think we're, again, in early days of that, and we need to be bold and do that in a way that allows us to look back in 20 years or 30 years and say, hey, we, we made good decisions or we didn't, because not only did we do this, but we collected data on what we were doing and we communicated about it.
0: Yeah, we're doing a lot of assisted migration here on the East Coast. And it's just because we've gotten so hot so quick that things that used to not grow grow in our area are now growing. And someone had the vision quite a while ago in Fairmount Park. They actually tried some Southern species as a project, as a science project, and discovered cool. that by about I think it was about 80% of the plants did well. It was understory plant material because the canopy was all native. So they got rid of all the invasives and they put these southern species in and they did really well. And they they are now being brought into the landscape in the woodlands here in southeastern PA, which I think is really a a wonderful story to tell and how we can actually help the environment rather than constantly destroy it.
2: I can agree more. I think you know there's a lot of great work happening in in native uh, plant restoration, and you know we've we've started the conversation to make sure that we're talking across the aisle. We don't want to just be the tree folks. We want to be the entire system folks. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Why not? And so yeah, I think that's that's the right way to do it. And you know, just like we vertically vertically integrated for reforestation, I think we should start you know as a community thinking about what collaborations look like, but there's a broader benefit and and all the trophic systems and levels are represented, you know, from the below ground mycorrhizae to the little critters that run around in the shrub habitats all the way up to the canopy and the, you know, the canopy species. I think there's a lot there. Yeah, we got a long way to
1: go. Well, Matthew, we thank you for your time. I was going to ask you to look into your crystal ball, but I think cumulatively, this whole episode has been looking into the crystal ball, so you're off the hook on that question. I did want to ask you, <laughs> yeah. uh, what is your favorite tree? Oh, can
2: I give you one for each system that I've worked in? You can run with it in any way you want. So I, uh, I have a deep history working with black walnut, Juglans nigra, and you know, the Purdue one, Black Walnut, is a famous strain of seed that has moved around in all the Black Walnut production areas. So when I was at Purdue, that was at the forefront of, of conversations, education, and, and lab work. And the first project I ever collaborated with my wife on was a Black Walnut browse trial in a greenhouse on the Purdue University campus. We were just dating at the time. And, and so many years later, you know, that's one of our favorite Eastern species. You know, we named our dog Wally Walnut after the tree. So um, that's my <laughs> that's favorite Eastern story. species. In, in the West, <laughs> I, I completely fell head over heels for the Ponderosa pine. The, I live in Bend, Oregon, partly because the ponderosas out here on the Deschutes are just uh, just mind-blowingly beautiful. Mm. They have this alligator skin bark. They're fire resilient when they're hundreds of years old. Their habitats, are ground stabilizing. They can handle deserts here on the high desert. They can be out in the wet forest. And again, they're from all the way from Canada down to Baja. You can find a ponderosa pine feeding you know, seeds to species and, and stabilizing hillsides and, and just magnificent, absolutely magnificent tree. Right on. That's a great answer.
0: Wow. Couple what great answer. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, well, we've, we really do thank you for being on our podcast and, and sharing your knowledge. And hopefully the people who are listening will get ideas for themselves. That's what it's all about.
1: And Matthew did give a shout out. All you... People looking considering a career change or a career at large in general, Look, moving forward is uh, seed collection and joining up
2: with the reforestation industry. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to <laughs> believe that I'd like to believe that. Eva Hal, thank you so much for having me, and for the great conversation. Uh, I'd love to be in touch, and I'm a fan of the podcast. We'll, we'll keep getting you know, out there listening, so yeah.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Matthew. Bye guys. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda Recordings in Hollywood, California.